text comes from Matthew chapter 18. We're continuing our study in Matthew as a church. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. If you'd like to take the Bible in front of you there in the back of the pew, uh, we'll be on page 824 in that Bible. 824, Matthew 18, verse 21. This is the word of our Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in the prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So, also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that if you are willing to forgive us our enormous debts to you, you can give us instruction from your word. You've given us your word. You desire that we understand it. So, Lord, give us understanding by the power of your spirit this morning. Lord, speak through me. May you be magnified. May the cross of Christ be so big to us today by the end of our time that, that all we can do is praise Jesus. And that's just in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I have a friend, a former partner of mine from when I was in law enforcement. And because of the nature of our work, when, when we were together, we were often together for really long periods of time. 
with nothing to do <laughs> but sit and watch and try to keep each other awake. And so we, we talked about pretty much everything. And talking about everything means that we often talked about faith. We talked about things of the Lord. We talked about big ideas. And this man had grown up going to church. And in many ways, when you examined his life, it, it showed. He was a good guy. He was an honest guy. He was a model citizen. But he wasn't a Christian. He had abandoned his faith, and here's why. This is what he told me. Uh, well, in addition to being on, on the unit that we worked together, he was an honor guard for our police department. That means that he went to every police officer funeral in the state. And at, at one particular funeral, he remembered, uh, he was telling me about the story, the officer that had been killed, had been murdered while he was on the duty. I don't remember by who, or it doesn't really matter. Um, but the officer that had fallen was, was a Christian. And so at the funeral, the presiding minister talked about one of the key aspects of this man's faith. And one of those aspects of his faith was forgiveness. And that pastor talked about how forgiving the murderer would be the Christ-like response. And that was the moment that my friend decided that Christianity was not for him. If that was the message of Christianity, he didn't want anything to do with it. To him, forgiveness was a virtue, as it is to many people in the world. But in the real world, forgiveness has its limits. In the world, we forgive those who, if we didn't forgive them, our lives would be more difficult. Forgiveness is like a salve. It's like good medicine for relationships. And we use it because it works. It helps. But, but in, our, in our minds in the world, where, where forgiveness will only lead to more pain... If you can actually get along better without seeking reconciliation, well, then that would be the better option. Not forgiving would be the better option if that's what works better. You see, we are born into the world as pragmatic creatures. We do what works. We seek what works. We're problem solvers. Forgiveness to us is a tool in the toolbox. And that's how Peter had been experiencing the world. It's, it's the way he grew up. According to the way that Peter was raised, forgiveness had a place. You see, a faithful Jew was supposed to forgive someone three times. Three times before refusing mercy to someone. Why three times? It's just a random number. No, three times we, we see it in the book of Amos, especially in Amos chapter 2. The Spirit tells us in Amos 2 that for three sins and for four, God is punishing Israel. So that's a poetic way of saying that God's mercy extends through the third sin. But then the fourth sin must be punished. Jews then, following how they understood God's example... 
I'm not saying they're right, okay, so don't misunderstand this, but this was their, their cultural understanding. Following how they understood God's example, they would forgive three times and then withhold forgiveness on the fourth. Forgiveness had its place, but forgiveness had its limits. In, in our text, remember this is all one section of teaching, so this is a follow-up to what we saw last week and the week before. Peter has just heard all that we learned last week, how we're to go to a brother who sinned against us, and then if he won't repent, we're supposed to take one or two others, and if he still won't repent, we take the whole church, and we're constantly seeking reconciliation and restoration. We're, we're extending the hand of forgiveness to this brother again and again and again and again, and you can see Peter's gears turning. Why are we doing this, Jesus? Why, why are we doing Why are we going to this such great lengths for a guy who sinned against us? This sounds like a big ordeal. When, when all I can do, I can just stop talking to him and the problem goes away. I can just move on and the problem goes away. Jesus, why do we do this? And, and he, He's thinking that, or at least I'm reading his mind, reading into his mind, he's, that that's what he's thinking. And we can see also that he's starting to get it, right? Peter's starting to get it. Remember, he's been with Jesus for almost three years now. And so he knows his cultural expectation is three times forgiveness. He hears Jesus' story, and he's thinking it's got to be more than that. And so that's why he asks this question in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Lord. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now we, we need to give Peter some credit. He is doubling the amount that is culturally expected. And then he's adding one for good measure. Peter is thinking big when it comes to forgiveness. The perfect number, seven times. This is about as generous as one could possibly be. As, one, as, as generous as a Jew can imagine himself being. Seven times. But look at Jesus' response. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, Peter, I'm inserting that. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Jesus does not mean here we are to forgive someone exactly 490 times. And then we've got to just move them along. Seven, think, think biblically, seven is the biblical number of completeness, the biblical number of fullness. Ten is another one of those types of numbers that represents completeness and fullness. So seven times seven times ten. That's representative of this, this number that is total and complete forgiveness, utter completeness. How many times are we to forgive someone? Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive until you breathe your last breath, Peter. That's, a, that's the point of all these verses. But there's something interesting I, I want to show you before we get to this parable that Jesus tells. There's another place in Scripture where we see this number, 70 times 7. 
And that place is way back in Genesis chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to summarize it for you. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. Uh, in Genesis 4, we learn about the, the great, 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 great grandson of Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Well, Cain had a great, 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 great grandson. And, and, and Cain, as the Bible teaches, is, is the spiritual offspring of the serpent, of the evil one. He does the devil's bidding. And Cain's descendant's name is Lamech. And in Genesis 4, this guy Lamech sings this little braggadocious song about a man that he's killed. A young man had been in an argument with Lamech. He somehow hurt Lamech, and so Lamech responded by killing him. And Lamech sings that while Cain's revenge on anyone is sevenfold, his revenge on anyone who offended him would be 70 times sevenfold. Total and complete vengeance. And so we're to see the comparison here. Jesus, on the other hand, is the seed of the woman. He is the fulfillment, not of the fall, but of the promise made to Eve after the fall. The promise that from her offspring would come one who would conquer the serpent's offspring. And this Jesus is teaching that it's not vengeance 70 times 7 times that we are to seek, but forgiveness 70 times 7. Total and complete forgiveness. So the picture that God is giving here, this massive contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the world, is that Jesus' approach to forgiveness is as foreign to the world as Jesus himself is. Jesus is not of this world. And so his ways are not of this world. We need to try to understand that as we, as we try to wrap our minds around what we're going to be reading here in this story from Jesus. While our heart's natural response, our worldly response, is revenge against someone who's wronged us, when, and we, we feel like we're doing them this big favor by forgiving them one, two, three, seven times, that way of thinking is a consequence of the fall. That is a departure from God. It's not a movement towards him. Jesus wants us to see in our text this morning that from his heart comes total and complete forgiveness. That's his heart toward us. That's what we're going to see in this story. And then the expectation, because we've been shown that type of forgiveness, because we've been totally forgiven, because we have received this unbelievable grace from God, we are to be transformed by that grace. When we're forgiven by the king, what happens to us is this transformation that his grace brings to us. Our hearts change. And we begin to instinctively move to Christ and away from Lamech. We move towards forgiveness and away from vengeance. And year after year, as we grow in Christ, more and more, prayer after prayer, because we've been forgiven, a heart of forgiveness becomes our new nature. And to teach us that, Jesus gives us this story. And look at how he begins. Look at verse 23. The kingdom of heaven 
So remember, he's teaching his disciples. This is the, all of these parables are meant to teach us what the kingdom of heaven is like. How the kingdom of heaven grows. Who belongs there? Who's the greatest there? And now, how its citizens treat one another there. The kingdom of heaven, he says, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 servants. And we think, okay, $10,000. No, no. In ancient Greek, the language that this is written in, the largest value column that they have is the 10,000s column. So for those who are doing like common core math, you know the columns, 10,000s columns. So, so where in our language, we have all these ways of describing much bigger numbers, like a million, a billion, a trillion, a Google. We have all these really big words for big numbers. The largest value they had in their language was that 10,000 number. They could describe bigger numbers, but they had to use it in multiples of 10,000s. Or myriads. And at the same time, so think that, and at the same time, in Greek, the largest denomination of money is the talent. To give a rough estimate of how much money a talent is, the average person might expect to gross about two talents over the course of his lifetime. Two. Lifetime. So the largest number 10,000, and the largest denomination of currency, a talent. So taken literally, and this is meant to be taken figuratively, but taken literally, this would be an equivalent to 5,000 lifetimes of earnings. Right? So this is an enormously unthinkable sum of money for any one individual. Jesus today might say something like, the king went to a servant who owed him trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And look at the beginning of verse 25, and since he could not pay, right, this is a wild understatement, of course he couldn't pay. Everyone listening would say, yeah, of course he can't pay. That's assumed in this story. That's the point of that big number. Since he could not pay the debt, the king orders the man to sell all that he has, including his wife, including his children, including himself, in order to even begin paying back the debt. And realistically, all of that might cover one talent. So he'd still have 9,999 to go, right? But it's a start. And the judgment, the judgment is far more than the man can bear. And we see that in verse 26. In verse 26, he falls on his face and he begs the king, just give me more time. Now, think about this. What will more time do? If it would take 5,000 lifetimes to pay back this debt, what could he accomplish in more time? What does he want? Three weeks? Three years? 30 years? More time will do nothing, will it? That's the absurdity that we're supposed to see in this story. But being in this infinitely deep hole, all this man can do is beg. He can, he, there's nothing else he can do. Well, in verse 27, we see the master's heart. The master has pity on the man. And he releases him and forgives him his debt. Now, if you haven't picked up on it already, 
what we're supposed to see in this story is that we are this man. I hope you've seen that. We are this man. We all owe an enormous debt to God, an, an, an unfathomable debt. 5,000 lifetimes of debt just begins to explain it. And like this man, we do not have the ability to pay it back. Our debt has been amassed because of our sin. And there is no amount of good work that we can do to pay our sin debt to God. No amount. To get a better idea of our debt, the reason why I chose Isaiah 40 as our scripture reading this morning is because Isaiah 40 shows us the bigness of God. And so I want us to look at the bigness of God in Isaiah 40. Remember back when Andy read Isaiah 40, 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of God's hand? He's marked off the heavens with a span. He, he's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. This imagery that Isaiah is giving us is, to sh is, is incalculable. It's not to scale. But if we were to attempt to put it to scale, this is kind of what it would look like. All of the waters on the earth are like a little drop. A little, if you stood on the seashore and just, you can't, you can't even see as far as the waters go. But all of that and, and more is like a little drop in the hand of God. All the waters of the earth, all the monstrous waves tossed up by hurricanes. Every deepest lake and longest river, all the oceans, all the water in the deepest chasms of the sea. All of it's like a little drop in the hand of God. Isaiah says the heavens are, are marked off with a span. You know what a span is? It's this length, that, that length from your end of your thumb to the end of your pinky finger. All of the galaxies of the universe like that to God's hand. Now think about it. We don't even know how far the universe expands. We can guess. Our, our finite universe, and it's finite, but even in its finitude, it, it, it's too big to contain in the human thought and in the human mind. And yet to God, it's like the distance from his thumb to his pinky. It's just, you're beginning to get an idea of God's bigness. Now, obviously, Isaiah is speaking figuratively. Like God doesn't have hands. But the idea is that God is that unfathomable. He is that big. He is creator. He sustains all that he's created. And there's no one bigger. There's no one more powerful. There's no one more worthy of worship. In fact, he is the only one worthy of worship. That's the point of Isaiah 40. Who else are you going to worship? An idol that you make with your hands? piece of wood? A football team? Who, who else are you going to worship? He's the only one worthy of worship. So then think this way. If God is that big, sin then is this. It's sin is when we, rather than trusting God, rather than giving God our allegiance and our worship and our obedience to him, sin is when we trust or worship or seek anything else, anyone else. And the white what the Bible tells us is that when we do this, when we sin, it's actually an affront to God. It's an insult to him. So think about that for a minute. Teeny tiny us, powerless compared to the size of the oceans, which are a drop in his hand, 
And we're smaller than specks compared to the universe. In Isaiah 40, the nations are as nothing to him. The universe is minuscule compared to him, and we're nothing compared to the universe, and yet our sin is an affront to someone that big. How can we be, how can we, being so, so tiny, so insignificant, how could God even be thinking of us? Why would he even think of us? And, and, and how would our sin, how could something we do have any effect on him? And yet, it does. At the very least, that means our sin is far, far more consequential than we think. When we sin against someone so big, so holy, so awesome and righteous as God, even one sin against him, even the littlest sin in our mind, is such a betrayal against him that we could never pay it back. But that's not how we think of sin, is it? It's not. If it were, we wouldn't do it. That's not how we think of sin. We think of our sins against God more like the way we think of when someone else sins against us. Like an equal sinning against an equal. Like when a seven-year-old breaks another kid's helicopter, his toy helicopter, and so he owes him five bucks. But our sin against God is more comparable in offense, and this is only beginning to scratch the surface of it, our sin against God is more comparable to that same seven-year-old kid destroying one of the Navy's fully loaded helicopters. So it's not, it's not that this little seven-year-old owes five dollars that he can work off by cleaning the garage. This seven-year-old now owes 30 million dollars, and he can't pay that back. And that's just, I'm serious, that's just beginning to grasp it. It's actually much worse than that. And we sin a lot. Every complaint, every anxious thought, every self-righteous thought, every little exaggeration of the truth, even the littlest one, every lustful look, every boast in ourselves, every wrong thought about God. And we, we can't even possibly think rightly about God completely, can we? Well, every wrong thought about God lessens him, and that's a sin against him. Everything that we do, every sin in our hearts, in our minds, in our words, with our bodies, every time we push against God and his good and perfect will again and again and again, what we're doing is amassing an unimaginably huge indebtedness to him. Every single time. And we can never pay back what we've done. But God is so great. God is so great. And our sin is such an offense to him that if you even begin to think that you can start to repay him, then you're diminishing the majesty and the holiness of God. If we start to think that through a thousand lifetimes of perfection in our good works, we could possibly even begin to pay off our debts to God. We are diminishing God's majesty and his glory and his holiness. And when we do that, we overestimate who we are and we underestimate who God is. So, so listen, 
here's the reality. Every sin against the infinitely great God of the universe is infinitely damning. Every sin. And where our indebtedness to God is that enormous, forgiveness of that sin becomes that much more astonishing, doesn't it? Astonishing. And, and here's what we need to understand. This, this story in Matthew is in Matthew 18. That's obvious. But we haven't reached the climax of the gospel yet. What we need to see is that the forgiveness Jesus is alluding to here, the forgiveness this great king has, this merciful king has, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not by fiat. The forgiveness comes at the cross. That's what's coming. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this, And you, us, Christians, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How, Paul? By nailing it to the cross. By nailing it to the cross. The cross, we've got to understand this to get this passage. The cross is the only way this debt that we have towards this king can possibly be forgiven. If only an infinitely rich God could pay our infinite debt, and God's infinite riches are most lavishly seen in his love towards his eternal son, then the payment of our eternal debt must come through the Father's giving of his eternal son. The life of his son is the only possible ransom for the debt that we owe. So friend, if you have been forgiven by God, you have been forgiven through the means of the son's death. There's no other way. And that forgiveness freely given to us is meant to accomplish something in us. It's meant to transform us, to, to change us so that we begin to bear the image of the Son. That's what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. And that's what we see as the expectation in Act 2 of this parable. So look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So, that, so the immediate response to the forgiveness that this man has been shown is to call in his debts. And so he finds the one guy who owes him the most, a hundred denarii. And that is about three months' wages. So if you're doing the math, about one one millionth the size of the debt that was just erased from this guy's ledger. One one millionth. He chokes him. He demands payment. Now watch, watch what happens here. Watch the response of the debtor. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, 
Have patience with me and I will pay you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? What's supposed to happen is that the forgiven servant, choking his fellow servant, hears his own words coming out of this man's mouth, and he remembers what happens to him, and he lets go, and he falls down and weeps. And he forgives the man. But that's not what happens. In verse 30, he refuses to forgive the man. He throws him into debtor's prison until he can pay off the debt. And the fellow servants are watching this, and they are just, they're shocked at what they're seeing. You, you can imagine the scene. Like, he, he's choking him, he's yelling at the guy, he throws him, and he turns around, and all these guys are watching him. They're, like, their mouths are open. They're like, what? He owed me. He owed me money. And you know what? He's right. He has every right to treat his debtor this way. Maybe not choke him, but, but he has the right to demand repayment. If someone owes you $20,000, which is roughly what this was, you have the right to demand payment. Who knows how long this guy has had this loan out? Maybe it's been years. Maybe it's been 10 years. Maybe this is the 15th time he's asked for a loan extension. And to the servant, his time is up. This is the way the world works. In the world, if someone owes you, you absolutely have the right to demand repayment. You can sue them. You can charge interest. Whatever needs to be done, you can do it because that's how the world world works. Think of it this way. When Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Chase Bank all received all these giant bailouts from the federal government. How many of you had your mortgages forgiven by those banks? I didn't. (laughs) None of them forgave anybody's mortgages when they had been forgiven an unimaginable sum. They weren't expected to. That's not how the world works. If you get a loan erased, lucky you. But there's no worldly expectation that you should extend that to others. This man is simply doing what is within his rights. He's doing what is normal. He's doing what is worldly. But here's the turn. What is this story alluding to? The kingdom of heaven is like something like this. See, these servants aren't just of any kingdom of the world. That's the entire point of this story. These servants are citizens who live and serve this merciful king. They belong to his kingdom. And in this merciful king's kingdom, forgiveness, not vengeance, forgiveness has been shown to be the norm, the expectation. In this kingdom, Setting aside your own rights in order to show forgiveness is expected because that's what the king does. Do you remember the beginning of chapter 18? When Jesus set aside his rights and he paid that temple tax. He set aside his rights. When we're wronged, we set aside our rights to vengeance and we forgive. That's what the king does. That's what the kingdom is like. 
what these servants are seeing in their fellow servant is worldliness. He's not living according to the kingdom principles. He's not been transformed by the king's forgiveness. He's still the same vengeful man that he always was. He's still following the patterns of the earthly kingdoms. And it's clear that his allegiance is to a king in himself, not to the true king. So from the way that Jesus tells us the story, it seems like the other servants all understand this. They know the expectation. That's why they're so distressed at the man's response. He isn't following after the king. He's following after the world. And so the servants report this treasonous action to the king. It's treason. That's what's taken place. So what will the king do? In the kingdom, when one of God's forgiven ones refuses to forgive, what happens? Look at verse 33. The king rebukes the servant, calls him wicked. He shows him what has been forgiven of him and shows him his fault. He says, you should have had mercy as I had mercy on you. And then in verse 34, Matthew says, And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Now, some of your, your Bibles have a little footnote that says the torturers. And that's, that's probably a more accurate translation. Torturers until he should repay all his debt. Now, remember, paying this debt off is impossible. So anyone listening would realize this is not an argument for purgatory. This, this, this debt can never possibly ever, ever, ever be paid off. He's in hell. He's going to die in that prison. Die the undying death. And then Jesus brings it across to us. This is the conclusion, the great conclusion. So also, and it's terrifying, isn't it? So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now here's the point Jesus wants Peter to see and that the spirit wants us to see as we're reading. If we are not a forgiving people, then it must be the case that we are not a forgiven people. If we're not changed, if we're not transformed by the mercy of our king, then it will turn out we don't belong to the king. Our allegiance is to a different king. The, the man who, who was shown mercy by the king was shown mercy for, for doing nothing. Right? All he did was beg. And even in his begging, he showed ignorance. His plea was that he be given more time. Be patient with me. I'll pay you back all that I owe. In his pride, what was he doing? He was overestimating his own ability. He was underestimating his own indebtedness. And yet the king forgave him entirely. Even with a bad prayer. From his heart, the king forgave from his nature, from his character, from the depths of who he is. The king was moved by this man's hopeless condition. The man didn't even know how to ask. The king was moved and he forgave him. 
And we, again, we hear that man. We can't earn God's mercy. Even our prayers, totally insufficient. God's mercy comes from the heart of God and it comes from nowhere else. So when he forgives us, it is not because he looks down through the corridors of time and determines we are a people worthy of his forgiveness. No, his forgiveness is absolutely, totally unconditional. But his forgiveness is totally transforming. When you were saved, you were saved from your debt, but you were saved to righteousness. You were saved in order that you would grow in Christ's likeness. You were transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the merciful king where God's character and his glory and his majesty are being made known to the world. And so the expectation in that kingdom is that you live, as Paul says, worthy of the salvation you've been given. That's the theological category that we have for this. Live worthy of the salvation you've been given. Live worthy of the forgiveness that you've been shown. And we see this all over the New Testament. I'm going to do a quick survey of it for you. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Colossians 1.10, Paul's prayer is that the Colossian church would better understand Christ's work for them and that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He tells the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians 1.11 is that God would make the church worthy of the calling he called them with. Over and over and over again. I'm just, I'm just giving you a little dip of it. Over again, we, we see that we are forgiven, we're made right before God, our debt is erased, and then our calling as Christians is to live in a manner worthy of what's just taken place. If we've been brought into the kingdom, we are to live like we belong in the kingdom. Anyone who's walked through the narrow gates of this kingdom has walked through those gates by God's mercy and his mercy alone. And we will be transformed by his mercy. So to live contrary to that law of mercy, to refuse forgiveness to anyone, is to live in a manner unworthy of kingdom citizenship. In fact, it is so treasonous to the king that continued citizenship is impossible. It's an oxymoron. These things, oil and water, they don't, they can't mix. Now, some of you, I know you're thinking this because I was thinking this this week. Some of you are, are caught up on this part of Jesus' story, this part where it seems like, seems like the king undoes his forgiveness. Seems like that. Doesn't it feel like that? 
or for tracking with the analogy Jesus is giving. Like God unsaves the Christian. And you're asking, it's a good question, does God do that? I thought, I thought God didn't do that. Does God ever go back on his forgiveness? And if that's where you're stuck, I need to remind you again about the part of this story that's missing. Where does our forgiveness come from? On, on what account, or rather on whose account, are we forgiven by God? It's on Christ's account, right? Our debt is paid at the cross. So if, if God hits rewind on history, sends Jesus back to earth, or back to earth, and he puts him back into the grave, and then back up onto the cross, and then off the cross, back to where he was before, like it never happened, and then he moves time forward again, and then Jesus dies of old age, never having accomplished the forgiveness of the church that he came to save. Well, then in that case, you would lose your salvation. Everyone would. But that's the only possible way that forgiveness could be undone. Your forgiveness was never conditional on your work. It's not what Jesus is teaching. Our forgiveness has always been conditional, absolutely, totally dependent on Christ's work. And Christ's work will never be undone. This story, remember Jesus is telling this to Peter, the other disciples. This story serves three purposes for the followers of Christ. One, to show that their debt to God is far greater than they could ever repay. And so their forgiveness is far more glorious than they can imagine. The second thing that Christ wants them to see is that God's mercy is meant to transform them. It's meant to transform us into merciful people. We're supposed to become like the king. That's the point. And the third purpose is this. This story stands as a warning. It's a warning. A forgiven sinner forgives. A kingdom citizen lives in a manner worthy of the kingdom. One who has been redeemed by Christ will be transformed by Christ. So if you're not being transformed, you're not living in a manner worthy of the kingdom, and you're not forgiving others, then you haven't been redeemed. You haven't been given citizenship in the kingdom. You haven't been forgiven. And so what does Jesus want us to hear? What's the point? Forgive. Forgive a thousand times, and then a thousand times more. And then some more. It, do you want assurance of salvation? Forgive, because you have been forgiven. And how have we been forgiven? From the heart. From the very heart of God springs our forgiveness. And so we must forgive from the heart. Look again at verses 34 and 35. And in his anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart this seems negative but wrapped up in this negative warning is Jesus's positive teaching kingdom citizens who have been forgiven by the king are to forgive from the heart 
our forgiveness of others. It's not a tool in the toolbox. Our forgiveness of others is, is to flow out of who we are in Christ. It's not something we do in order to get something else. It flows out of who we are. It's just who we are in Christ. It's not contrary to who we are when we're following King Jesus. Forgiving someone is not a favor we do for them. It's not something we do to get what we want. It's not, not, like, it's, it's not like it used to be when we were citizens of the world. Forgiveness isn't just an option right next to vengeance. Forgiving and merciful? Who do those things describe? They describe Jesus, don't they? They are in the very nature of God. And those being in the very nature of God, those become traits that are born into us when we're born again by the Spirit of God. We forgive from the heart because we've been given a new heart. See how it works? And if that seems simple, it is, but let me just show you how radical this is. To forgive someone in this way means that you, when you forgive, you willfully and joyfully, that's what from the heart means, it's, it's, it's what's happened to you. you, you are so overjoyed at the forgiveness that has been shown to you, you're so transformed, you willfully give up the right to punish someone who's wronged you. You no longer want bad for them. That's the forgiveness Jesus is talking about here. That's the kingdom way. And yet every single one of us in this room, every one of us has someone if we thought hard enough, someone that if misfortune happened to that person, like if they just tripped, we would crack a little smile. Right? There would be a little of us, a little bit of us who just thinks, yeah, that's what you deserve. And there are some of us who long for even more than that. We long for an opportunity to just meet with someone face to face, someone who's hurt us so that we could give them payback. Some of us would rather identify with Lamech than with Jesus. Hearing Jesus' instruction here makes us cringe. It makes us want to rationalize why we feel the way they, that we do, right? Dustin, you don't understand how this person has hurt me. You could never understand what I've been through. Unimaginable abuse, the awful divorce, the betrayal, stabbing in the back. Some of you hear Jesus' instruction in a little corner of you, maybe bigger than you want to admit, has a whole lot of Lamech in it. A lot more desire for revenge, a lot more desire to see judgment far too little desire to forgive. Regardless of where you are on that spectrum, just wanting to see somebody trip and fall, or maybe see someone get in a car crash, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, none of us, none of us is as merciful as our merciful king. We all 
have a lot more of our old selves in us than we would ever, ever want anyone to see. And perhaps the greatest reason that we're not as merciful as we should be is we haven't reckoned with how merciful God has been to us. We don't, we don't understand just how holy he is. And we don't, we don't understand just how wicked our sin is. And so we haven't even begun to conceive of how awful the cross is. And I mean that in lots of ways. How terrible and violent the wrath of God was that was poured out on his son at the cross. We don't understand how desperate our situation was. The biggest thought that we can conjure up in our fleshly minds is, God, if you give me more time. Just give me a little more time. When in reality, what our merciful God knows is that more time would only increase our guilt. Friends, we are not as merciful as we should be because we have not begun to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. The love that held him on the cross so that we could be forgiven. We don't forgive like we should forgive because we do not wonder, full of awe, at what happened on the cross. So I want to leave you with this. The bigger the cross of our king becomes to you, the more like our king you will become. The bigger the greater your need for the cross, the more you realize just how holy God is and how wicked you are and how big the cross must be, only then will you become more like Christ. And the bigger that cross becomes to you, the more like him you become.